Acts chapter 11. It's our calling, right? Changing the world, the, the church to the world, the, the, the grand theme of this uh, series, for, oh gosh, for now over a year has been the church changing the world. That's what we're working through. This morning we're going to see that in uh, Acts chapter 11, verse 27 is we're going to start. And then we're going to do all of chapter 12. Uh, remember what I've been saying about particularly narratives, uh, and this is a narrative story, Acts is. Luke is doing something with what he wrote. He's, he's making a point beyond just giving us details about uh, some, some occurrences in uh, the ancient Near East. Uh, he, he's, he's telling us particular things. And as we get to this passage, we, we have to wonder what this whole Herod story has to do with the famine story. Or why would he say, and they took up a collection for the famine, and, and oh, by the way, Herod did these things, and then he died, and then, oh, and then they left after the collection. It just, it doesn't make sense in, as we just read it. It doesn't fit the timeline, really. It's, it's, it's an awkward spot, unless Luke is doing something with the story and trying to get a particular point across to us. And I think he is, and there are a three or four different ways we can go with this. Uh, as with most passages of Scripture, there's something that the author's doing, there's something that the author's teaching explicitly, but then there's how it applies to us today uh, in our cultural context where we are, and uh, that's, what, that's where we are when we come to a narrative. What is not just what is God saying in the text, but what is he saying to us today with it? Well, that's where we're going to go today. But first, uh, as a, as way of, by way of introduction, uh, there was in Texas from Houston, well, from north of Houston, all the way to Mexico, going south of San Antonio, there's a thing called the Eagle Ford Shale Play. Now, if you aren't in the, are in the oil business at all, you might have heard of that. There's a map of it. Uh, the green that you see there, the, the long dinosaur-looking green thing, is uh, that's oil, and that's the, the tip over of, up here. That's above Houston, uh, or nearly above Houston, and it comes down, swings under San Antonio, and goes all the way to uh, Mexico. The green, like I said, is oil. The... Uh, the yellow is a mix of stuff, and then that, uh, what color does it look like to y'all? Red, purplish color, pink, whatever, is uh, um, natural gas. Now, Michael, what's your point? Well, that end of that yellow arrow where it's pointing is Nixon, where we came from. Nixon, obviously, Texas. This oil play, or this uh, Eagle Ford Shale play, it was one of the earlier uses of, of fracking in the U.S. Uh, fracking is when you drill down into this porous stone and uh, you uh, set off little charges to bust up the stone and, and then you squirt water down there and it pushes the oil out. Uh, there are probably enough of folks in here that can say that's not at all how it works, Michael. It's much more technical. Yeah, I know. Um, I never did it. I just lived around it. And they got this, they found this, uh, this peak, this, this uh, play around 2008. At its peak, some wells were producing 4,000 barrels of oil a day. Uh, there were people in and around Nixon, south of Nixon, all along that uh, green stripe there that got very rich very quickly. Uh, we were, ta we're talking about folks that made million dollars a year for a couple of years um, and out there that was a lot of money over over here right here that's a lot of money too uh, it wasn't tapped until 2008 that was when they 
Uh, they knew it was there, but that was when they had the, uh, the, the technology to get to it, and then re- really took off in 2012, uh, about a year after we got there. They, they were, as soon as we got there in 2011, they were talking about this oil that was underneath there and how everybody was going to be rich. And uh, Well, only landowners got rich. Uh, that's the way it worked. You had to already own some land. Folks that owned few thousand acres got really rich. Uh, folks that owned uh, a few hundred acres might get kind of rich or at least pay off some debts, which, you know, for some of us, that would be rich, right, if we could just pay those suckers off. Problem was, it fizzled out in 2015. Uh, now, it's not that the oil's not there. It's that the oil prices dropped. So what happens, right? Supply and demand, you get a lot of something, the price of it goes down. And in particular, uh, we learned, I learned a lot more about the oil business than, than I would have ever known having, if I hadn't lived there. In order to get the oil out of there, a barrel of oil had to sell for about 75 to 80 bucks to, to make it worthwhile. Otherwise, you're either breaking even or it's costing money to get the oil out. Well, I checked yesterday, uh, and Eagle Ford, it has its own uh, like stock ticker label, Eagle Ford oil is just under $70 a barrel. So it's really not worth it. And before we left Nixon, we saw people getting laid off 2015. They'd, they were making $25 an hour, $27 an hour doing pretty basic labor because they needed the work. It was great until it wasn't. What's interesting is underneath Eagle Ford Shale is another play called Pearsall Shale. And the way it was described to me one time was if Eagle Ford is the Gulf of Mexico, the Pearsall Shale is the Pacific Ocean as far as the amount of oil. But one oil rig takes $10 million just to drill down to it. So it's certainly not worth it. Michael, why are you giving us a lesson in oil and geology? Well, the, the, the title of my sermon today is The Untapped Power. That's the direction we're going with the text today. We're going to see that the power, to see the power that the church had. Right now, underneath Nixon, Texas, and, and uh, uh, Carn City, and uh, Kennedy, and, and places, uh, Lucky is upstairs in the booth nodding right now about Kennedy, Texas, because that's where he was born, right, Aris? Uh, Kennedy, Texas, so he knows what I'm talking about there. Uh, underneath that is this untapped power, literally, right? Because this is oil. This is what runs our, our cars, and, 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 uh, and a lot of times it's, it's what powers our uh, uh, electricity, uh, the electric plants, and uh, we just can't make it without oil. So this untapped power sits there, and below that is even more untapped power, and I'm afraid we as the church oftentimes are sitting on an untapped power. And we're going to see the the reverse of that, or the opposite of that, as we read this scripture, as we look at it this morning, we're going to see that the, the, the church uh, in Antioch, the, the early church, and even the church in Jerusalem, they tapped into this power. They knew that they had this power. They might have questioned it along the way. They might not have been as quick to tap into it as they should have been or could have been, but they knew that they had it. Read with me, uh, eleven twenty-seven, and then all the way through uh, chapter 12. In those days, some prophet, uh, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. This they did, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church, and he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter, too, during the festival of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers, each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him, When Herod was about to bring him out for trial, that very night, Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers. While the sentries in front of the door guarded this prison, uh, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he he woke him up and said, Quick, get up! And the chains fell off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him. 
and put on your sandals. And he did. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. So he went out and followed, and he did not know that what the angel did was really happening because he thought he was seeing a vision. After they passed the first and second guards, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by, them, by itself. They went outside and passed one street, and suddenly the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. He knocked at the door of the outer gate, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, and because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the outer gate. You're out of your mind, they told her. But she kept insisting that it was true, and they said, it's his angel. Peter, however, kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. Motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Tell these things to James and the brothers, he said, and he left and went to another place. At daylight, there was a great commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had searched and did not find him, he interrogated the guards and ordered their execution. Then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Together they presented themselves before him. After winning over Blastus, who was in charge of the king's bedroom, they asked for peace, because their country was supplied with food from the king's country. On an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a speech to them. The assembled people began to shout, It's the voice of a god and not of a man! At once an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give the glory to God, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God flourished and multiplied. After they had completed their relief mission, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem, taking along John, who was called Mark. The big picture here in what Luke is doing with this passage is transitioning us finally from Jerusalem church to the Antioch church. He's transitioning, transitioning us. I'm going to say that word correctly the first time here at some point. You watch. He's transitioning us from Peter to Paul. He's, at chapter 13, the only time Peter comes up again or, Paul, or, or uh, Jerusalem comes up again is when Paul goes to Jerusalem to talk about the, uh, the Gentiles and, and what they're going to do there, a, a meeting that Paul tells us about in some detail in Galatians. So that's the big picture there. But, but it seems like, you would think, Luke could have told us this story and said, well, he could have done it with a lot more uh, brevity. He, he could have shortened it up. And, and why this whole thing about Herod? Okay, it, it's important, sure, that Peter was in jail. I don't need to tell that story. But, but why did God, through Luke, tell us this story about Herod and, and Tyre and Sidon and being eaten, eaten with worms and 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 it just it kind of seems like it's an odd injection into the story. And he also splits this whole Paul and Barnabas go to Jerusalem with the uh, uh, love offering, and then tells us at the end of the story how they leave. It, it it makes no sense unless Luke is doing something in particular with the story. That's what we're gonna look at this morning is that Luke is doing something particular here and I think one of the things at least that he is doing is he is telling us about that untapped power that that power that was not untapped by the early church but that power that we far too often leave untapped in this first scene we we have a uh, kind of a bad chapter break it looks like we we, we break where we see chapter 12, verse 1, but really that should have probably backed up and the chapter break should be here at 11.27 because this whole unit goes together. But we see in verses 27 through uh, 30 of chapter 11, we see that we have the power to know. The power to know. Now God does this very specifically in this scene. He allows this fellow, this prophet named Agabus, to see the future. 
That's uh, how we, the, this what we're told here. Uh, in those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem. Prophet was a particular office at the time of, of the church. Um, it was very much, at least in a few cases, a fourth telling a foreseeing of what was going to happen in the future. Uh, Agabus gets to do this again later on, and it's not as happy a, a, an ending when he does it later, uh, as we will see. But he allows Agabus to see the future and says, there's going to be this uh, a famine throughout the Roman world, and, the, and, and Luke goes on to tell us it took place during the reign of Claudius. Turns out we have multiple examples of, of crop failures throughout the reign of Claudius, Claudius being the Roman emperor at the time. This one that Agabus is talking about likely happened around 42, 43 AD. That doesn't matter too much as far as, you know, does that affect anything really? No. But we're now 10 to 12 to 13 years-ish after the crucifixion and the resurrection. So gives you some idea of the time that has passed that Paul was spent, had spent in Tarsus. The, the Antioch church has grown after uh, Stephen and, and the other Hellenistic Jews were scattered. Uh, well, Stephen was martyred and the others scattered. So we, we kind of see this, this timeline. We're, we're looking back. We get, okay, so 13 years. We've got an idea of how, how things grew and, and, and uh, progressed in that time. What we see here, uh, the, the small picture, is we see that the, the, the Antioch church is doing this ministry uh, among churches across all lines. It's, it's, it is maybe the first convention of churches or the first association of churches. The, the distance here might make it more an association than a convention. It's churches working together for a, a singular purpose, obviously, to, to share the gospel, but then because of their relationship with each other, they're working and helping each other. Well, one other thing we see here as Luke moves the story along is we see elders in Jerusalem, not apostles. Remember when uh, they, brought, they, they took up the, uh, uh, the first offering for those who, in Jerusalem who, who didn't have enough to eat, and Barnabas brought, uh, sold his land in Cyprus and brought his gift, and Ananias and Sapphira brought part of their gift, and they laid it at the apostles' feet. It was, we, we're seeing a change in leadership here. Uh, we're seeing the apostles, well, we're going to see the apostles be killed or uh, leave because of the persecution. And, and we don't know, we know tradition tells us many of the other apostles scattered out and went on uh, missionary journeys of their own. But we're seeing that transition in Jerusalem and at the Jerusalem church. And we're seeing the Jerusalem church, like I said last few weeks, th then begin to fade primarily because they were not doing. Uh, international missions, world missions. They were fulfilling part of the Great Commission, part of Acts 1-8, but they didn't, as a church, fulfill all of it. We're going to see a, a, a great testimony, even here, of what they were doing locally, but they, they, were, they were holding back. So we, we see this, this power to know uh, from Agabus, uh, this, this prophet, uh, prophetic vision I have uh, in, in all of my life, I, I've had one, two, three, zero prophetic visions. Uh, never seen the future. Just hasn't happened. I wish uh, lottery numbers would be great. Um, LSU beating Georgia by 20. Um, that would have been gambling, and that's a sin. But uh, it's still... You know, but still, that would have been great to know that. I've, I've never had that. So I'm not saying here that, that God necessarily, God can do what he wants to. I'm not going to put a limit on him. But God does not necessarily give us these visions of this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, as he did with Agabus. Even with Agabus, uh, it's not, he doesn't give a lot of detail, right? There's going to be severe famine throughout the Roman world. Well, that could have been anywhere from Egypt to Italy, to Syria. I mean, that's a huge swath of land that could have had a, a famine. And, and God says, it's going to happen. You're going to have this. See, God showed what was coming to allow the church to prepare. The power to know. I believe we have that same power today. 
We have the power to know. I believe God will tell us what is coming so that we can prepare. Will it be as even, even as specific as this, as Agabus's prophecy? I don't know. Maybe. I lean toward probably not. But I do believe God gives us, if we will tap into that power, God gives us the ability to see what he is doing and join him there. Might sound like something we've learned here in the last 12, uh, 10 months or so. It's clear God wants us to know what he's doing, and this is something he was doing. Luke uh, bookends this Herod story and this Peter story with famine and famine. So he's telling us something here. There's a point he's making, and I think the first uh, point he's making is that we have the power to know what God is doing and what he is doing in his church and then how we can join him in that because that's what we see this Antioch church doing, right? God's saying, I'm gonna, uh, there's going to be a famine and the church knowing this is an opportunity for us to join God in what he's going to do in the Judean the, the regional church in that area. The second thing, we're going to see five of these. The second thing that we see, or the second power that we see in this uh, passage is found in verses uh, 1 through 5 of chapter 12. We see the power to trust. We learn in this section that Herod is, is uh, about to uh, ramp up some persecution. Uh, he violently attacked some who belonged to the church. So there, there were more that were affected by this persecution than just James and Peter, but these are the ones Luke wants us to know about. So he, he violently attacked some of them who belonged, and he executed James, John's brother. This would be the three, uh, one of the three that Jesus took with him all the time. Peter, James, and John, the sons of Zebedee, James and John. Though that James is who we are talking about here. Now, something you need to know about Herod is he wanted to appear Jewish. He was raised in Rome. Uh, you, uh, if, you've, if you've been here at Christmas and we've watched the Nativity story, we, uh, we watch the movie and you see Herod talking about killing the babies and, and, and the, one that, the, the, the Herod that accepted, uh, greeted the, the wise men and, and that Herod. This is this Herod's grandfather. Uh, this Herod uh, uh, killed, I'm sorry, Grandpa Herod killed grandson Herod's daddy. Uh, they, he makes a comment in that movie, if you, again, if you've seen it. Uh, he makes a comment if you haven't seen it, actually. Um, he makes the comment and says to Antipas, his only surviving son, I have a way of dealing with people who cross me. Well, Antipas knows because uh, Herod has killed a wife at this point and one of his sons because, and then maybe somebody else, because he thought they were plotting to take over his throne. So we're at that grandson. In order to protect him, uh, grandson Herod, his mama took him to Rome at a very young age, and he was raised among these guys that are going to be Caesars. Uh, he was raised with Claudius. He was friends with him. Uh, the next emperor is going to be a fellow by the name of Caligula. Uh, you might have heard that name in, in your Western civilization classes. They were good friends. They were like literally in nursery together and, and, and school together and great friends. And that's how Herod became uh, uh, king. But he was very, 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 very Roman and kind of Jewish. But when it came to politics... He wanted to appear Jewish. This, this persecution was not a religious move. He wasn't out to purify the Jewish faith. He was out to curry favor with the Jewish leaders. That's all he was doing. I guarantee you I would stake all the money I won yesterday betting on LSU to win. I would stake all of that money on the fact that Herod did not give two wits about these Christians, these followers of the way, this Jesus fella, just did not care. But he did care that the Jews, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, he did care that they liked him. So he makes this political, not religious move. And it was driven by this desire to, to look as Jewish as possible. 
to the people in Jerusalem, and, and particularly the people in Jerusalem. So that's what Herod's doing now, making this political move. He's killing at least James. He's plotting to kill Peter. He has persecuted some other people. One apostle is dead, and one is in prison. Michael, tell me about the part where we get to the trust. Well, they pray. They know they only have one option in this. They only have one way that they can respond to what's going on. They pray. Y'all, there is even trust in the death of James. We want to say, it, it, it makes us feel better if we can say that we trust and Peter gets rescued. Yay, we trusted God and look what he did. The reality is we trust God and sometimes James gets killed. We trust God whether the end is what we want or not. The church are, is praying after James is killed. Did, did you hear that? The church is praying after James is already dead. They're not praying for James to be saved, to, be, uh, uh, to survive. They're praying for Peter, that he might live. Why would they do that? Why would they pray knowing, well, God let James die? Isn't that what some of us would do? Well, I'm not going to bother now. He let James die. I'm not going to pray for Peter. He's going to die too. No point. Now, see, we have a power, a, an untapped, sadly, power that, often untapped power, that, that allows us to trust even in the worst of circumstances, even when the outcome is not what we desire. We have the power to trust. And not only do we have that power, it is necessary to trust. So we have the, the power to know what God is going to do. We have the power to trust through any uh, outcome. And then verse 3, or, or, or number 3, we have the power to pray. Church, while Peter is in jail, uh, he's, he's, Peter's waiting to the end of Passover. Incidentally, does that sound familiar to us? Around Passover, somebody uh, being arrested, and then uh, in that case, it was Jesus. He was crucified before Passover. Let's get this over with before Passover so we can have a happy Passover. And Herod was not going to take a chance on breaking any of the laws, any of the religious laws, and try and execute someone during the Feast of Unleavened Bread or right around Passover. He's just going to wait till it's over to make sure he doesn't do anything to stir up the Sanhedrin, stir up the, the Sadducees. But as we read the story, we see it's, it's the night of his execution. He's got his last, uh, he's had his last meal, um, he's doomed at this point, Peter is. There's no escape for him, so he is fretting and worrying. And Oh, no, my, my, bad, my bad, he's asleep. Yeah, he's totally asleep. He just laid back out cold between these two guards. He's, he's handcuffed to two. It's four rotations of four guards. He's handcuffed to two of them. Two of them are standing guard, probably at the first gate, uh, first uh, door, and then the second door, as it tells us he moves through. And then three hours later, they'd rotate. Four more come in, two are handcuffed, two guard, and then they, they do this uh, over, uh, over the course of the evening. And Peter's asleep. He's going to die the next day. And he's asleep. Now, if we can go back to the power to trust, <laughs> Peter had it. Peter was looking at his own death, and he could sleep in heavenly peace. <laughs> he could sleep in heavenly peace, knowing that whatever happened the next morning didn't matter. He, he could say, like Paul, later on, to live as Christ, to die as gain. I'm good either way. And in the midst of this prison, he could sleep. The, the, the church was not as calm as him. And that's okay. That's not a, a, a bad thing. That's not negative. We see that God had a plan. We see that God was doing something. Uh, he was working something out. We, don't, uh, we see in verse 5 that the church was praying for fervently to God for him. And then we see 
that Peter was asleep. So already their prayers were working. Not, maybe not the way that they anticipated, but he had an incredible peace, and God had an incredible plan. And so we read through there. An angel appeared. Light shone in the cell. And Peter... It's dark in there. Light comes on, boom, bah. You do that at my house, you flip the light on in the room for everybody except our children, it wakes you up. It's like, oh, who's gonna stop, stop, stop. Peter's just, he's out. So the angel, y'all, you've got to see the humor in this. I'm not making light of scripture. I believe God intentionally made this light. This is a humorous passage of scripture. So the angel walks up, light didn't wake him up. So the, 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 uh, the angel, Peter, kicks him, strikes him on the side. Get up! Peter is, is mostly asleep still at this point. Look, look at all the instructions the angel get, gives. Quick, get up! It sounds like a parent trying to get a child out of bed for school. Yeah, get up! I've told you ten times. Quick, get up! Chains fell off his wrists. You can kind of see him. You ever dressed your child when they didn't want to be awake? Peter, put your clothes on. Oh, okay. Peter, put your sandals on. All right, let's get. Peter, get your coat. It's right there in Scripture. I'm not adding anything to it. Quick, get up. Chains fell off his wrist. Get dressed, the angel told him. Put on your sandals, he said. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him. Come on, let's go. It says, follow me. But that's why Come on, Peter. Peter, it says, had no idea that this was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. It's probably, pro- probably why he didn't figure he needed to get dressed. I, I can have a vision naked. It doesn't matter. And then they, after they passed through the second, first and second guards, they came to the iron gate, leads to the city. It opened to them by itself. They went out, passed one street, and suddenly the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, oh, that was real. When he woke up, that's, that's really what happened. And, he, and, and where does he go? Well, he goes to where there's uh, a church happening, where there's a prayer meeting. It's uh, the, uh, the house of Mary, John Mark, um, uh, the, the, the guy who is going. It's probably the Mark that wrote the, the, the gospel Mark. It's that Mark who's going to be on a missionary journey. We'll talk about that in a minute. And he goes, Peter goes, it, just, it, it, it is a comedy, y'all. He goes and, and, and he knocks on the door. And this girl named Rhoda comes to the door, and she, you know, they're having a prayer meeting. They know Christians are being persecuted. James is dead. Peter's in prison. So she cracks the door, whip, and she closes it. And she runs off to tell them, it's Peter. What are they praying for? Peter. What are they praying that will happen to Peter? That he'd get out of prison. It's Peter. Shut up. We're, it's, how can it be Peter? We're praying for him in prison. He can't be standing at the door. They say it's his ghost, or it's a, it, which is a, that, that seems weird. It sounds almost like, well, he's already dead. No, I don't think they thought that. Uh, at this time, everybody believed you kind of had an angel, a guardian angel, but that angel looked like you. Uh, so what they're saying is you're seeing his angel. You're seeing his guardian angel. Uh, that's, that's what you're seeing. You're, you're nuts, little girl. You're crazy, little girl. No, she says, it's him. It's him. You know what's going on the whole time they're doing this? They're having this argument? Guys. Guys. They're looking for me. Let me in. Guys. And they're arguing about this. He's like, I'm telling you, it is him. She knew it was him. Then they went and opened the door and were like, it's Peter. The church couldn't believe their own prayers. They could not believe God had answered their prayer. They didn't understand the power of prayer. The power we have when we pray. Scripture is pretty clear that we don't see results because we don't pray. That you have not because you ask not. Now, we're told to ask for things in God's will. We're, it's made clear we don't just get to, 
I don't just get to know LSU is going to beat Georgia by 20 and get to, to make the, the right bet somewhere and win all that money that, that we could have won. No, I, I don't just get to do that. I have to pray in God's will, and then he will do things. But we don't see results because we don't pray. This does not mean we get to control God. That, that's the extreme of that passage. Remember, we pray in God's will. And he answers. But what we absolutely see in Scripture, and we do not understand the mystery of it, so don't ask me to explain it to you, God is moved by our prayers. There are things that God does because we pray. Would he have done them if we hadn't prayed? Scripture seems to say no. I think Scripture does say no. Like I said, I'm not going to go so far as to say we control God. We don't. God is much bigger than me. I will never say that. But I will say, in God's cosmic economy, as God has set up his relationship with us through Jesus Christ, one of the things he has set up is, when we pray, he acts. I don't get it, but I know that's what Scripture tells us. When we pray, God acts. We have not because we ask not. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Ask and it will be given to you. If anyone asks in my name, according to my will, it will be given to them. The power to pray. And I think if, if I, I even came close to getting the five different powers right here, I, I think it, there's a reason why at least in my brain, the biggest section is the power to pray because I believe the other four powers stem from that. We pray, we will know. If we pray, we will trust. And then in verse, verses 20 through 23, we see the power to hope. If we pray, we will hope. And here's that odd little story that just doesn't really seem to fit uh, unless he's just telling us how Herod died, and, and it seems to be more there than just that. Herod's angry with the folks of Tyre and Sidon. That's up near Caesarea. It says in the verse right before it, then Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea. That's actually north, but everything's down from Jerusalem. So uh, he went from Judah to Caesarea, and while there, he's dealing with Tyre and Sidon. And Tyre and Sidon get all of their food from Galilee. They, they don't have their own places to grow. They have to import their food. The king, Herod, controls imports, exports. He controls the food supply. And, and in this passage, his control of the food supply is on display. Now, what did, what started this story? There's going to be a famine. The Antioch church is going to take up an offering to relieve the Judean famine. Herod controls the food supply. So Herod could control uh, or could be a threat to this relief from Antioch, right? He could, if they were just bringing money, it might be okay, but what if there's no food when they get there? No, no food to buy. If they buy food somewhere else and ship it in, is he going to, to do something with that? Herod controls the food supply, right? He thinks he does. Who controls the food supply? Who is in control here? God. Herod thinks he is because he's a minimal Jew, uh, but, but he's not in control. Rome doesn't give him control. He gives him a semblance of control, it looks like it, but God is in control. God is using this situation to show his power. I believe God is using this situation to show the power that we have to hope. Looked pretty hopeless. Looked pretty bleak. James is dead. Peter, and these are probably two uh, concurrent streams of things that are happening. This, this issue with the persecution, this issue with the, uh, the famine. They're probably happening at the same time. It just You can't tell a story that way, especially not, uh, not written. But we've got this food issue on the one hand. We've got this persecution issue on on the other hand, and God is saying, you know what? Guys, I got both of them. James is gone. It was time. It, it's what I needed to happen. Peter is saved. It, it's what I needed to happen. This famine, y'all, this is me. 
I, I, I control the weather. I control your crops. I control countries. I've got this. I've got the food. I've got the power. And then God fixes both of them in this one little passage. And I think that's what Luke is showing us. That God controls Herod. God controls Caesar. God controls the weather. God controls food. God controls the church. God controls everything. So we have the power to hope, even in our most uncertain moments. Our hope is in the one that can change anything. He can take out a king. He can fix a food supply issue. He can protect one of his own, if that's his will. He can allow one of his own to come to a martyr's death, if that is his will. But in our most certain moments, we uncertain moments, we have the power to hope. Herod's not in control. God is in control. And we know that when we pray. Remember, it, it kind of goes back to that prayer, that relationship. And then finally, verses 24 through 25, we see that we have the power to be faithful. We get the last summary statement. This is our, I think, fourth summary statement of uh, missionary activity among the, in the Jerusalem church among the people of Jerusalem. Added to them, thousands added, even the priests were coming to Jesus, and now we have verse 24, but the word of God flourished and multiplied. After they had completed their relief mission, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem, taking along John, who was called Mark. So the Jerusalem church continued to reach Jerusalem. Uh, you know, I've, I've said some pretty negative things about the Jerusalem church. They weren't doing everything they were supposed to, and that's true. They weren't reaching the world, but they were doing a pretty good job of reaching Jerusalem. Now, you could also say that if things got rough, they backed off, and, and when things were smooth, they started again. Uh, I don't know that that's a good thing. We are to be faithful in times of plenty and in times of persecution. But nevertheless, Luke is told by God to put in here that the Jerusalem church was reaching Jerusalem. They were reaching the people of Jerusalem. They continued to do it. And then we see that this missionary task force that's going to come out of Antioch is continuing to grow. Mar, uh, Paul and Barnabas, they deliver their relief offering to, to Jerusalem. And uh, my translation here I don't know why they did it this way. This is a very difficult verse to translate, verse 25. The Greek is just awkward, how it puts words in different places. And it, we read it the way we have it, and the word is translated correctly. Um, it just depends on where you put the words. After they had completed their relief mission, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem. Why did they return to Jerusalem? They were in Jerusalem during the, doing the relief mission. Probably what it meant to say, and some of your translations may kind of have it this way, some of your translations say, from Jerusalem. That's an addition. They did that later on to try to make it easier. Uh, one of the rules in figuring out what the original text really said, in case somebody changed it along the way, is the harder it is to read, the more likely it is to be the original. Uh, so if, if you get a letter from me and the 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 punctuation's bad, and, and there are uh, uh, misspelled words and that kind of thing. Or you get a nice typed letter that uh, has been put through a word processor, and everything's been spell-checked. Well, which one's the original? Well, the one I hand-wrote, the one with the mistakes, probably, versus the one that has been through an editor or two. So, uh, that's what, so if your translation says from, that's not great. What it probably says here is that uh, Paul and Barnabas, or Saul and Barnabas, returned uh, after they had completed their relief mission to Jerusalem. Barnabas and Saul returned, taking along John, who was called Mark. Makes more sense that way. After they had completed the mission to Jerusalem, they returned, and John Mark went with them. Just a, a, I like you all to see that the process of getting our Bible from Greek to English. Uh, there, there's nothing that really changes here 
Um, theologically, it doesn't, doesn't affect our faith and our salvation, any of that. But I want, I want y'all to be an, a, an educated group about, oh, that's how it works? Okay. And some of you are going, Michael, I could not care less. But some of you are going, okay, I'm glad you said that, Michael. So I said it for them. Regardless, though, this missionary force is growing. They take John Mark with them, and it's a direct result of what God is doing, of seeing God work. All this was ha- that prayer meeting was at John Mark's mama's house, in case you missed that. John Mark was very likely there praying, and Peter shows up. And, and, and John Mark says, you know what? And we already know Peter's all done the whole Cornelius thing, and, and Peter's off the map at this point. It says he leaves, uh, he goes to another place, he does come back a few chapters later, he shows up in Jerusalem a few years later when things cool off. Uh, but John Mark says, I see what, can y'all believe what Antioch's doing? They sent us a love offering. For, for our famine, things probably ain't great there either. But they sent us a love. I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of what God is doing. I want to be faithful to the call that God has put on us as a church and as individuals. See, circumstances cannot, must not, should not weaken our determination to do God's work. We have the power to be faithful in the midst of uh, famine, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of imprisonment, in the midst of deliverance. We are called to be faithful. So we see in these five powers what we really need to see, that untapped power is the Holy Spirit. See, it's the Holy Spirit who is our, uh, that is our source of knowledge. That's who leads us into all knowledge and all wisdom. The Holy Spirit is our source of trust. It is the Holy Spirit in us that says, God has this, who speaks to us, who leads us, who guides us, who whispers to us. The Holy Spirit is our source for prayer. I guarantee you, those folks in, in uh, John Mark's mother's house didn't know what to pray. They weren't sure, do we, do we pray for his deliverance? Do we pray for his faithfulness in this time? Do we pray that he is safe? Do we pray that he is just uh, uh, a bold witness? What do we pray? And at some point, I would be willing to bet if they were anything like most of us, there came a time where they just didn't have the words. And you know who prayed for them? The Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is our source of prayer. The Holy Spirit is our source of hope. The Holy Spirit is the one who sees us in our bad circumstances and says, God has this. He is taking care of you. He will see you through. The Holy Spirit is our source for determination. The Holy Spirit is our strength when we do not believe we can make it. The Holy Spirit is the one who says to us, you have power through Jesus Christ to take on any situation that comes your way. It does not matter what it is, but far too often we leave that source untapped. It's too expensive to drill down that far. It costs me too much to reach that deep inside and to have that kind of trust. It is just not worth it to go through the things I have to go through in order to have that sort of trust, that sort of tapped in power through the Holy Spirit. It is always worth it. There is no situation that the Holy Spirit will not be our source of strength for, our source of prayer, knowledge, determination, hope. Believers, that's your source. If you're trying to make it on anything else, you're not going to do it. You're going to fail. You're going to run out. If it's your own strength, if it's your own power, it's not going to happen. If it's the Holy Spirit, you can make it. But the Holy Spirit is only your source if you've believed on Jesus for your salvation. See, we don't get it any other way. The Holy Spirit is a gift based on salvation. Uh, it's, it's more than a gift. It's our seal. It's our mark. It's, it's the brand that we get that says he's mine. But it's more than that, too. It is, it is our power to live the Christ-centered life. But you only get that upon faith in Jesus Christ. Well, what does that look like? What does salvation power look like? It looks like admitting that you're a sinner. 
understanding that you are lost, that, that, that you don't have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and because of your sins, you will suffer an eternity apart from Him. You will get the hell you deserve. But you can have faith, you can have forgiveness, and you can ask God to do that. A, admit that you're a sinner, and ask God to forgive you. Well, but what is that based on? That's based on B, our belief in Jesus Christ, that he is the perfect son of God, that his death and, and resurrection, death on the cross and resurrection was in our place for our sins, for our punishment. And then we choose to follow him and say, you know what, I'm, I'm leaving the world behind, I'm following God through Jesus Christ instead. I choose to make him my savior. That's salvation power. And that is if I'm going to keep the oil well, drill, rig, illustration going, that's the rig above ground that taps into the power below ground. That relationship with Jesus Christ is the foundation, is the, the mechanism to tap into that Holy Spirit power. And you can have that this morning. Doesn't cost $10 million, doesn't take months to build, it's a boom, and you've got Jesus. Ask, believe, and choose. And you can do that this morning. Pray with me. Father, thank you that we can have that salvation. We can have that power. We can drill down today. No weight, no cost, except, you know, our lives. No, no financial cost, except only what you call us to give. Lord, we can have it. You provide it today. God, I pray that someone here will experience the salvation power that they've not experienced. God, I pray today that believers will turn and experience the Holy Spirit's power that maybe has gone untapped for them for quite some time. Power to, uh, it's power to know, the power to trust, the power to pray, the power to, uh, to hope, and the power for determination to get through any circumstance in life. God, maybe they feel like their well is run dry. Maybe they feel like the rig's rusted. Lord, I pray this morning that you would get that thing pumping and they would know the power of your Holy Spirit in their lives. God, I pray that you would move through this place, that you would speak to every heart as is needed. You know who needs what. God, we ask for your work this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've come to a time of decision for you, a time of response. How are you going to respond? Maybe you need to accept Christ and get that rig built and begin to drill into that Holy Spirit power. Maybe you're a believer and you just need to get it running again. You can come talk to me. You can pray with Tom. If you need to be led and uh, in, in what to do to accept Christ, we'd love to do that. If you, we'd just like somebody to pray with you, maybe you want to come to these prayer rails and lift it up to Jesus yourself. Whatever it is, you come this morning, let's stand, let's sing, and let's do business with God.